Hi, Mary. How are you doing? How's it going getting all your stuff finished off before your big departure later this week? It's still going. Hopefully, it's still going strong. It's a bit of a balancing act because so we're recording this on the 15th of December. My family Christmas is on the 17th. I haven't finished buying Christmas presents yet. We've still got quite a lot of outstanding deliveries and we've got Royal Mail strikes this week. So that's all great. Lots and lots of handovers at work, obviously making sure all my clients are going to be well looked after, various internal conversations, making sure everyone knows what they're doing, all of that sort of stuff. So yeah. And then we fly on Monday. So yeah, when that wow. comes, everything will have been done and we'll be all good. Awesome. Yeah. Monday is not far away. Yeah. We're on the Thursday at the moment, but there's a, it sounds like there's a little bit of wood to chop before you get there, but that's going to be, I'm sure, busy and rewarding a few days. But yeah, well, thanks for taking the time out to chat to us and record this. <laughs> been looking forward to this. But yes, I suppose quick reminder, a couple of colleagues, Lassie Shakerin and Nikki Matthews, who listeners might know, are going to be helping out co-hosting some of the episodes in the new year. Mm-hmm. Not calling it a replacement, right? Definitely not a replacement. I am coming back for sure. Yeah, good. And then slightly confusingly to some listeners, we have pre-recorded a couple of episodes already. So you will hear Mary a little bit next year on some of the episodes we've done in advance, sort of podcasting dark arts, getting those in the can early. But anyway, we've got some good ones to come. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the sort of last episode of the year. So we thought we'd do a little bit of a reflect on 2022. And we did the same thing last year. Which is actually quite funny, isn't it? When we look at how we, so we reviewed this by thinking of three people that represented the year for us. And I think, what were mine? Mine were Elon Musk, Greta Thunberg, and was it Boris Johnson? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's to be clear. That was what you said last year for 2021, right? And what I think is so funny about that is the first two of those could equally be candidates, even more so for 2022, right? Because, you know, for the almost first half of the year, Boris Johnson was still prime minister. Elon Musk has obviously loomed pretty large the whole year. Whereas my three picks for 2021 were, Kathy Wood, founder of ARK Investments, and Vlad Tenev, founder of Robinhood, and Albert Baller, CEO of Pfizer. And they were all definitely 2021 people. We have not heard much from Kathy Wood or Vlad Tenev this year. So I feel like I stuck to the assignment for 2021. You actually maybe got a bit ahead of yourself with 2022 people. I think that's right. I think you won the game. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I could have cheated and said, well, mine, mine were just as relevant in 2022, so I don't need to think of three more names. But I have thought of three more names for this year. Which Right. Yeah. And Mary and I don't know what each other have picked, which I always think is the right <laughs> way to do this. But I am so excited to hear who you've gone with and what the overlap is. So go on, tell us who you've gone for. Okay. So just very quickly, I'll go through all three. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got Volodymyr Zelensky, quite obvious reasons. I think just the figurehead that he's created through the, the conflict that's obviously been going on for most of the year now, I think is very iconic. I've also gone for the Queen, felt like couldn't really not mention that, but she represents not just the Queen who died, but also the various royal family drama, should we call it, that we've seen across the year and, and obviously blowing up a little bit in the last couple of weeks as well with the Netflix series. And finally, Sam Bankman-Fried, so FTX, which I guess partly that's because cryptocurrencies feels like they've had another big year in 2022, but also the very more recent news around um, downfall of FTX and being denied bail, I think, was it last week or last couple of days at least? So it feels like that's very relevant for this year too. Yeah, nice list. So I had two out of those three as well. Did you? <laughs> Listeners, we promised we did not coordinate on this. So I yeah. also had Vladimir Zelensky and Queen Elizabeth II as two of mine. I'm glad we differed on one of them. So I went for Jerome Powell for the other one, which is a little bit boring. But I mean, interest rates have just been the big story this year. And I felt he sort of typified that a little bit. So yeah, I mean, we got four characters there that I guess maybe have roughly spanned the year. But I mean, how on earth can you try and summarize a year like 2022? It's just been a lot, hasn't it? 
it has. And given last year's not here to say this, her contribution to this list was the lettuce, who I'm sure we all remember fondly from late September, early October, that did outlive Liz Truss's time as, as Prime Minister. So there's a fifth one for you, which I think we probably can restrict to a 2022 and, and won't drift into a 2023 theme. But hopefully. At yeah, least. Well, let's hope not. Yeah, well, that's, it's a good point, because out of those four four characters that you and I have said, none of them are really UK political characters. I mean, Queen's not really political, but and UK politics has been a huge story of the year as well. So yeah, I did also debate whether Liz Truss, Kwasi Kwarteng were in there, but maybe a little bit too short-lived to really be a defining figure of the whole year. But UK politics has been a big thing. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. How many of those are also going to be, be big figures of the next year? We shall see some of them probably. We shall see. Yeah, in some ways, you almost hope none of them will be because of the drivers for them all being in, involved. Maybe Jerome Powell is the exception there, but we shall see indeed. Yeah, they don't necessarily represent very positive stories, do they? But that is just part and parcel of 2022. It's not been a particularly year for positive good news stuff, has it? So hopefully that, that might change next year. So, well, I suppose we've still got the actual episode before we before we say goodbye, but this is the end of 2022 for our chats and for, for podcast recordings. So hope everyone's had a good year to the extent they've been able to. Hope everyone has a, a fantastic Christmas and best wishes for 2023. I'm going to speak to you in three months' time. Yeah. And of course, best wishes for your trip. I'm sure we're all going to miss you loads. It's going to be weird not doing these with you every, every few weeks, but yeah, looking forward to getting you back after that. So yeah, have a great Christmas and a great trip. And here's the episode with Antti Ullman and Unexpected Returns. Great. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We are talking today something that's really important for long-term investors, and that's expected returns. And who better to be talking to than someone who's written a book called Expected Returns? So delighted to say that we are speaking to Antti Ilmanen, a principal at AQR. Antti, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Looking forward to this. Welcome, Antti. Before we jump into the, the meat of today's discussion, and in particular, the contents of your book, I wondered if you could give the listeners a feel for your role at AQR and, and what it involves on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure. So AQR is a systematic asset management firm. I co-head their portfolio solutions group, where we ad advise large institutions on any investment challenges that they face. We are also a key part of the firm's thought leadership. We write research, present it in conferences, and in my case, also through books. And finally, I've had a role in designing some of the strategies we have, especially style premium. Great. We're looking forward to getting into all of that. Antti, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Well, the CV would show that I'm Finnish and I got a Chicago PhD. And it might indicate that when I came to Chicago, I had already a couple of masters in Finland and a few years of practitioner experience investing Finland's foreign exchange reserves. But the CV wouldn't tell that I was many years older when I came to Chicago than the Smarty Pie teaching assistant in my first pharma class, the very young Cliff Asnes. Well, we got along well and I, I did well in that class and that sort of meant that I might have joined AQR from day one. But the other key person I met in Chicago was my future wife. 
a German girl doing her MBA there. And we made a deal with her that if she waits in the US through my PhD years, I will then basically offer a German base for the rest of her life. So, and I've honored that deal and, and that's why I'm calling right now from Germany. And so this delayed my joining my natural home AQR until 2011. And I've had this arrangement already before AQR and since then where I can work half the time from home and net it has worked beautifully. What a lovely story. That's just really nice and heartwarming to hear, isn't it? And actually, I guess you're a bit of a trailblazer in terms of the working from home sort of vibe that now everyone's doing. You're an old hand at this. Yeah, yeah. But certainly then, and I think now, you have to prove that you can be efficient about it. So there's some onus on your shoulders as well. Yeah, definitely. So whereabouts are you joining us from in Germany, just quickly? Near Frankfurt, small town called Bad Homburg. Wonderful. Brilliant. Okay, let's get into it, Antti. I mean, one question I always like to ask authors is the why question, which you don't often sort of obviously read, read in a book there. Why write the book? And I suppose for you, that's a question in two parts because you first wrote Expected Returns back in 2011. So why did you write a book on Expected Returns back then? And why the update that you've just written this year as well? Yeah. Well, I had already learned earlier in my career that my own strength is probably being a bridge between academia and practitioners sort of expressing complex ideas in palatable ways. I had published lots of articles early on on bond markets and yield curve in 1990s at Salomon Brothers, and then I broadened into other asset classes. I did systematic macro trading at Brevan Howard, and I advised Norway sovereign wealth fund on good long-run investing, so different perspectives. Plus, I was a voracious reader. And all of this made me at some point feel that we could really put together a pretty comprehensive book which became expected returns. And I really thought that I was then done because it was, it was a biggie. I was done with book writing. But once I joined AQR, I learned that I still have a further learning curve. So that was one habit, one motivator. But, but also there's this thing that in recent years, I felt the world needed some credible warning about the low expected return challenge that was just getting worse. And this led to the new book, Investing Amid Low Expected Returns which came out this spring. You mentioned bringing together academia and practitioners. What was the sort of intended audience of the first book in 2011? Was it the everyday investor who's you know running their small portfolio of stocks and other investments? Was it professionals, but just making it more accessible? It had to be professional. So it does require decent knowledge of finance. So I think it was primarily for institutional investors, could be for I would say very sophisticated individual investors, but there's a lot of stuff there that sort of still requires some pre-knowledge. But the good news in some ways is that if people worry about equations and so on. I got very few equations. Like I'm, I'm not a sort of quantic quant. I naturally think in terms of, I don't know, pictures and intuitions and so on. And that maybe broadens the audience. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a really distinctive feature of a lot of the work that your group do, I think, isn't it? Is that bridge between academia and asset management is probably one of the, the differentiating features of the firm, I would say. Is it true, I've heard that story that Cliff Asnes, founder of AQR, said that he would write the foreword for the book if you got it down to less than 200 pages or something or 300 pages. Was that true? Yeah, with this one. And it turns out that I worried a little. I went over initially and I did cut, but I also had good negotiations with Wiley, the publisher, about the book height and how many pages. <laughs> <laughs> 43, 43 rows per page. You can check, but it's 47 rows per page. <laughs> it was with the first book and I insisted on it. Excellent. <laughs> Thinking outside the box, that's great. <laughs> 
So should we talk a bit about expected returns as a sort of general concept? And and I guess what's your perception of how investors think about expected returns and the extent to which they do and should think about expected returns? Yeah, well, I do think people definitely think more about expected returns than about other parts of investment process. So in some sense, in, in the new book, I then said that, okay, let's also talk about portfolio construction, risk management, cost control, those types of things. But I think when people think about expected returns, the most, most I think, common problem is that people judge it too easily from the rear view mirror perspective. You know, looking at last few years returns or maybe last decade, and that, you know, that's understandable. It's sort of, that's the human learning way in some sense, but, but that rear view mirror can give just the wrong signals after a period where market has had a big repricing one way or the other. And in the last 10 years, before 2022, we just had a, like a huge bull market and there was a risk that you know people are over-optimistic before that, just when expected returns were about as low as they had ever been. So I suppose if there's a too big a risk that we're looking backwards too much, what should investors start with? I realise there's lots of features that would feed into thinking about expected returns, but what's for you the very first thing to think about? Yeah, I think the most important distinction in general in thinking about expected returns if you try to do it somehow systematically, and by the way, I talk of long term and not not just you know next month or quarter. It's either looking at historical average returns or some forward-looking yield-based or valuation-based estimates. And historical average return makes sense if you think it's a world of constant expected returns, and then you want to basically look at some long-run historical averages up to the period where you think the world hasn't changed too much. And the yield-based, the forward-looking yield-based expected returns are better if you think expected returns vary over time. And I think clearly they do, but not always in ways that are easy to exploit. So I think the, certainly the literature started by looking at equity premium and so on through historical average returns. And they expressed them as, so you could look at total return or excess return over inflation or cash or bonds. Sometimes like those anchors were sort of, they are allowed to vary over time, but then the premium over that is constant. And, and so ultimately, I think estimating expected returns is as much art as science. But if you want to do it seriously, I, I do think that more often it's better to use this forward-looking approach. Yeah. It's interesting you say art more art than science because you know sometimes you do see expected returns quoted to two decimal places, even one decimal place feels maybe a bit much. I don't know. What would you say to that? Is that yeah, you, are they yeah. within one decimal place? Yeah, I do think that false precision is, well, even using point estimates, which we use, but I, I really don't like us going beyond that first decimal. I think I think I, I do allow first decimal, definitely, but beyond that is hard. And there is an argument, one could say, that you should really show ranges to, to imply, indicate the humility that's appropriate with these types of approaches. Yeah, I agree with that. Just picking up just quickly on one thing you said, that this idea of the equity risk premium, that's obviously pretty foundational to a lot of expected returns. But you mentioned whether it's over inflation or over bonds or over cash. And for a long time, that distinction didn't actually matter that much. But when you think about it now, that kind of does really matter. And do you have any sense of sort of fundamentally or intrinsically, which should it be the one you look at? Should you be thinking about equity returns over inflation, or in which case inflation where? Or should it be cash and risk-free rates? Yeah, well, there are some different types of answers to that one. So one is that that in some cases, it really is appropriate to look at it over cash. So for example, if you were to use leverage, 
then it is the thing that that's over cash that you can lever. Or if you think of currency hedging, again, it is it's a thing over cash that is relevant. So there's those types of things. But sort of like if you think what I think there was often an idea that let's say that there's a positive real cash rate, or and then it went negative for a long time. So it really was important to think about both aspects. So you could see. Basically, you could see, and you saw, I think, until a couple of years ago, basically a world where now you had very low expected returns on everything, but the premium over a cash, because the cash had this minus one, minus two percent real return, that premium may have been more, more okay. So again, it, it's not that one of them was right or wrong, but it was sort of important to highlight both perspectives when talking about. Mostly, I do think that thinking of real returns is works well, like that you you know, you you do adjust somehow at least the inflation level away. Either that or over cash are my favorite ways of looking at things. And I suppose how does that interact with, so most or many institutional investors will be deciding between different investment options. And particularly if it's a multi-asset portfolio, you're deciding between a very high level stocks and bonds, but obviously there's a lot more granular detail. So in that context, is it very important that all different types of assets are defined from an expected returns perspective in the same way, or actually given different asset classes behave differently, do you use completely different models and that's fine? Yeah, well, I definitely like to have a common framework. And the one I I, I like in general is something like the discounted cash flow approach, or it's roughly the yield-based approach. So you can think with equities, it would be yield and growth and maybe mean reverting valuation. So there's always a question, is there some predictable change in valuations? Often there is actually not, not too much of that. And uh, but, but so I like this idea that that's what we use when it's available. So for bonds, it can be as simple as yield and you might, might add the roll down and some other geeky things there. And, and with credits, you have to think about how much there is expected default loss. And so, so these types of questions, again, for equities, besides starting yields, and there are lots of detailed questions, how to think nowadays about the role of buybacks and so on. So in the olden days, it was just dividend yields. Now it's something broader and it's it's fuzzy. But but anyway, so yield-based measure, some assumed growth assumption, which payout growth assumption for equities. And when you look at the different capital market assumptions providers, the big difference is really, do you assume mean reverting valuations or not? In some cases, that gives a, the key difference. And well, it turns out that, by the way, anybody who was who was looking at 10 years ago at these types of estimates turned out to make two cautious estimates because we just had a decade where valuations didn't mean revert. They actually mean averted or basically already rich equities, but even richer during the decade. So anybody who was predicting mean reversion made even worse forecasts exposed. That's a really interesting area, isn't it? Let's come back to that. But one thing I just wanted to pick up on just quickly, one thing I've sort of come to the realization of working with expected returns is often that common framework is the most important thing. It's not necessarily about getting the number right, but if you can just assess all the different asset classes in some kind of consistent way, that consistency bit is the important bit because if you can assess them all consistency, you'll probably end up with the right portfolio, even if your expected return number is just way off. Whereas if you have all the expected returns are kind of inconsistent, you could just end up with a weird portfolio. There's this funny thing, and I didn't articulate it even so well in the book, but I've thought it more clearly now, that basically in some cases you can't use that yield or discounted cash flow approach. You don't know really those. So commodities is an example, or 
or high turnover hedge funds or alternative risk premia, you really can't think of what those cash flows will be in the future. So in those cases, you have to use some combination of historical average returns, probably discounted somehow lower and some economic logic and priors, what makes sense because of risk or diversification, et cetera, considerations. That creates some of this inconsistency. But but again, I'd go as far as I can with yield-based estimates and then say that if I don't have that, I just try to have as good sort of long-run unconditional return estimate based on other other stuff than starting yields and expenses. Is that sort of where you bring sharp ratios and stuff in to try and keep it a little bit consistent? Yeah, so you're trying to, yeah. Trying to so assess it, the especially with long short strategies, it's essential to think about sharp ratios and and then what kind of volatility levels are targeted. So I suppose, again, thinking about an institutional investor, so a DB pension fund, for example, where they're combining, they're not the underlying investment manager looking at individual opportunities, but they're combining a series of portfolios are there any differences in the way that you think about expected return across a full portfolio basis versus a more sort of specific investment fund, for example? So, again, a, a pension fund, I think, has to think just just more consistently. I, th- I think if you are, if I'm thinking of, of now now my old role at, let's say, Brevan Howard or something, it just did not care about long-run expected returns. It was all about short-term uh, things and so on. We may try to think then what's the expected return on that fund, and that then comes probably from us thinking about something like, okay, so we can look at their historical track record, and again, if we are smart, we recognize that we probably look at them more more after they have had good performance, so we should sort of shade it down because of that selection bias. Or then logically, again, starting from priors, we can think that, okay, so is there some equity beta that they would be getting there? In case of Brevan Howard, there wouldn't be, but with many others, there would be some, we should think of that compensation. And then you add some some alpha where I think my main recommendation would be to be pretty humble about those alpha estimates then and in a forward-looking sense. But so so that's that's one example of those individual funds. But again, I think like Dan said earlier, when it comes to a broad asset allocator like a pension fund, it is helpful if they can have a common framework for, for thinking about all the components of their portfolio. And to just go back quickly to the question of valuation then, because you sort of mentioned it, but let me, let, let's tackle that question. Does valuation matter for expensive returns and how much, I guess, and when, all those sort of things? In a forward-looking sense, so valuations do matter, but they matter very slowly. And their effect can be delayed. So again, with the last 10 years, if you are thinking of mean reverting valuations, well, too bad that it went the other way. But whereas a payback time came in 2022 and probably I would expect beyond this. And so it's good to you consider valuations, but it's also good to sort of recognize that their impact can be delayed by abnormally long bull markets or structural changes. So there is, I, like I've got this cliche that Contrarian strategies have got this classic problem that their signals often come too early and early EQLs wrong. And this is more so if you have a 10-year business cycle and bull market as opposed to the normal five, six-year business cycle and bull market, which is exactly what happened in the last 10 years. And this explains why contrarian strategies and anybody who was looking at valuations was getting hurt at the tail end of that period. So it wasn't just directionally, you know, on overall level of equity and bond market valuations getting higher or starting years lower, but it was also in country allocation, US equities, 
looked the most expensive and just kept outperforming and and then in stock selection value versus growth all of these contrarian strategies had tough times until this year now it's only that country allocation the us underweight based on its richness which hasn't yet turned i wonder Andy, if you could speak a little bit around the different way if it is different that you think about expected returns at the time you were writing your updated book which I assume didn't reflect the last couple of months of of changes versus sort of a decade ago and perhaps even bring us completely up to date in terms of whether what's happened in the last few months has shifted your view again. Yeah, so it was a key theme in that new book that we have had this exceptional decade. So I was saying that it's that all major asset classes gradually shifted to ever higher valuations and ever lower starting yields. And thus expected returns. It wasn't just bonds, it was bond stocks, real estate, private assets, but it emanated from bonds because government bonds, real yields fell to this record low negative levels. And I say that when the common riskless discount rate, which is used in pricing all long only assets, is at all time lows, then that can make all assets expensive at the same time. And this is what happened. So that was the story a year ago. And if I put some Actually, so let me tell the story from that 40-year perspective because it is interesting. If you think of the world 40 years ago in early 1980s, almost all assets were cheap. And I, I highlighted simple expected real return of a 60-40 portfolio was over 6% real then. It had been hovering 4 or 5% through much of the 1900s, but it rose to 6-7% 40 years ago. We were in a world where everything was cheap and real, expected real yields were high. And then we traveled gradually over 40 years to this opposite world, and which pretty much was at its peak or yield from yield perspective trough in 2021, where everything was as expensive or near as expensive as it had ever been. And that 60-40 expected real return basically well below long-run average to 1.3% or so. And in that sense, I was saying that we were borrowing returns from the future because this richening of various asset classes meant that we had very nice trailing returns or exceptionally nice trailing returns, but that also meant that our prospective returns were lower. So that was a story in my first book. And I was saying that these low expected returns that we have through those low starting years, they will definitely mean problems for the future. And I don't know whether it's going to be through a slow pain of clipping tiny coupons and dividends or fast pain of repricing to cheaper levels. Well, now then coming to your second part of the question, this year did bring that fast pain, the payback time in a sense. And uh, fundamentally, so I think like, you know, the inflation problem forced the Fed and other central banks to finally aggressively tighten monetary policies. And that had effects on asset prices. Sadly, I can't tell now that the fast pain of this year has solved the slow pain problem. I think the low expected returns are still there. So for that 60-40 portfolio, where the expected real return was maybe traffing around 1.3%, it pretty much doubled to 2.5% by now. Still well below long-run average. And I suspect that Fed has to do more from here. So I, I expect that before the inflation genies back in the bottle, real years have to rise more. But the worst current consideration I'd say is that most of the expected return adjustment this year has been in bonds. So 10-year tips yield rose from minus 1% to plus 1.5%. And my estimates of expected returns on stocks or private assets haven't moved nearly as much. And a year ago, 
when people motivated the high valuations of equities or housing, they were often expressly tying them to those real treasury yields, the negative yields. And now that connection is conveniently forgotten. And, and so as a discretionary pundit now, this is not a systematic view. As a discretionary pundit, I am very cautious still here. But since our firm's systematic signals are also bearish, I don't sort of feel bad about saying this. The only thing I would maybe say lastly, this came so forcefully, came out so forcefully. So one should always be humble about such comments. And now I just sounded overconfident, which is probably happens when I have been luckily good with my this year's call. So 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 that that's it. In reality, we would not recommend very big deviations from long run asset allocations, but seen a little is the theme that we tend to say. Yeah, I've heard that little uh, little phrase before. I was just going to, so just to recap, so you said at the very bottom, the 60-40 real return after inflation got down to about 1.3, and you think that's now doubled to about 2.5, but you're still seeing that as actually not that great by long-run standards, and you're sort of a little bit bearish, therefore you think that could go up a little bit more, which would involve, it sort of, sort of involve losses. But I, I guess the question, yeah, well, I guess I was going to come out to that humidity point. I mean, it's out of that 10 years where so many people were saying, oh, things have to revert, they've got so far one way, they have to revert, and they didn't. What's the takeaway from all of that? Is it that we should place less emphasis on reverting and valuation and stuff? So, yeah, we, we, we have, I think, proactively tried to answer that in some of our presentations, certainly, and maybe even in some publication, because we, like many others, were predicting low expected returns much earlier. And with hindsight, so again, I could say that 10 years ago, we were talking about 4% real return on S&P 500 for the next decade. And it delivered 14% before this year now. So 2012 to end of 2011, that decade, 14% real, which is clearly like much higher than one should expect. But anyway, huge forecast error. And I have, you know, my lame answer to that is that at least we didn't forecast mean reverting valuations. Look at those. They have got even worse estimates or or look at look at non-U. This was for US because non-US would have a smaller forecast error. But it like we, we did focus on postmortem on where did that 10% forecast error come from? And we found that it came primarily from valuation change. And basically I can tell in that decade, SP 500s valuation, and now I talk of Schiller price earnings ratio, the CAPE cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, that doubled from 20, which was already above the long run average, to 40. And that cost 7% richening every year. I don't feel too bad that I didn't get that or no, but nobody got it really ex ante. But I think then to your question, what's the main message? I think the main message is we have to be humble. We know that market timing, short-term forecasts are hard, but so are long-term forecasts. 10-year forecasts can be of this kind of 10%. And when I look at longer history, I see that there have been this plus 10%, minus 10% forecast errors. It's roughly about as bad as it gets with these yield-based approaches. But I'd still say this is about as good as it gets. This is We can try to make a little better yield-based estimates and so on, but all of these will end up having that type of forecast errors for equities when you get big repricings one way or the other. I think that's just what's going to happen. And then the question is, should that make you just stop using this? Well, that's very nihilistic. I, I think historical average returns even predict you to the wrong direction. So I think yield-based estimates are as good as it gets, but let's be humble about how good we think they are, how reliable we think they are. In that context, and maybe asking almost the other side of the picture, 
Is it the slow and steady pain that you described or is it the sharp repricing pain that would worry you the most from the perspective of I've put a portfolio together? What could go wrong with that? I do actually, like I ask sometimes investors, this institution, this question that it's, it's good for you to ask what's the worst thing for you? Is it a fast or slow pain? Another question is like, is a worse environment 2008 where you have basically equities suffer, but bonds rally? Or is it this year's where both are suffering? And that second one depends a lot whether you look at asset-only perspective or asset liability perspective. But but anyway, so I think it is very important for anybody to think about this sort of what's the worst outcome for me. And I don't have a generic answer. I think it is for, in the long run, probably the slow pain scenario is worse for investors and certainly for young people. The fast pain just feels worse because it's so acute. But there are good, you know, like I, I tend to try to say some nice things about it, that cheaper assets are more affordable assets. And for young savers especially, this is almost unambiguously good news for older ones less so. But anyway, so so the answers vary. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? If you're actively contributing more to your investments, which a lot of people are, and institutions, people, whatever, then you ought to be happy to invest at higher expected returns. And often the narrative doesn't always capture that. I was listening to something the other day where someone was saying, you should just invert the equity index and call it the investor opportunity index. So when the market falls, the investor opportunity index is hitting new highs because because it's so attractive. And you just don't hear that. It doesn't really get captured in the discourse often enough. Yeah. Find. And I think the helpful aspect of this type of perspective is that it could enhance investor patience. There's always this worry that people capitulate at the bottom and the more they can think that, well, this is there's something good in this and worth sticking in, that should help investors long run outcomes. You touched on this earlier, but I wonder if we could go back in a little bit more detail on how do you think about and set expected returns for assets where the, the data just isn't there? So I guess private market assets is an area we didn't touch on earlier. Yeah, yeah. So I, I told that I like the yield-based approach where possible. Sometimes it's not, and I told commodities and hedge funds and so on. But then, so private assets, you can use, I think, quite, you can use the DCF approach or or then otherwise you could use public equivalent proxy. So we are we are pretty cautious compared to many others. Like there has been this flow of money coming to the private space, and that's clearly partly motivated by higher expected returns. And I think so people either assume high illiquidity premia or top quartile managers there. And we'd say that that's probably unreasonable. So one one logic is, and I so as a starting point, I say that a conservative view and maybe realistic view is to assume similar expected return for public and private equity and credit and so on. And the one logic now is that People too easily think that there's an illiquidity premium. I think it makes sense that there would be an illiquidity premium if you lock your money for five, 10 years. But that's not the only thing we think about when we are investing in private assets. We also think about, well, I call it smoothing service. Cliff calls it volatility laundering, basically lack of mark to market. This is clearly something that people value and that may offset all of that fair illiquidity premium and might even lead to discount. And when we look at some valuations, between private and public assets, and it's it's difficult to get that. But they have been pretty similar for the last 15-ish years. So somewhere in 2000s, basically, my reading is that the example of Yale model, David Swenson's endowment, endowment model, pulled so much institutional capital to private asset space, and increasingly so, that that has made that area more competitive. 
and valuation gaps are much more modest. Realized returns have been the advantage that private equity has become much more modest. So I think we have been more in this world of pretty comparable returns and valuations sometimes are higher, sometimes are lower. I think last year after the bull market time, sure, the smooth private asset valuations were cheaper and now they may be richer because they haven't adjusted enough. But there isn't any more that easy valuation gap that used to be there, that those assets were simply cheaper. So overall, again, if you have a good yield base, they can do the DCF analysis, then that we have tried that, we would do something like that. But if not, then I would pretty much think that, okay, let's look at what you get from similar public assets and don't expect much extra. And if you get that top quartile manager, by all means, assume more, but that ain't so easy as everybody thinks. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic point you're making there on the illiquid private assets. And obviously, I've heard your colleagues and people like Cliff mention that before a little bit. I don't think think enough people make that point about some of the benefits of assets that are illiquid, the fact that the returns are smooth so much and that you're actually forced to stay in them might actually be a a good thing. But just anecdotally, I think you see that a little bit this year. You see some infrastructure funds, for example, that hold listed assets and very similar private assets. And of course, the valuation of the private assets hasn't gone down at all, whereas the listed ones are, are a lot lower and Often I'm a bit surprised how little people pick up on that. It's kind of just accepted as, as sort of normal. But the point I was going to come back to the, the private markets, I'm torn a little bit. I think in some ways, expected returns are a bit underappreciated, right? I mean, so much of the narrative in investing is about like market go up, market go down. Is the market going to go up? Is the Fed going to pivot? All that sort of stuff. And people don't often enough say, but well, what does that mean for expected returns? But one area where expected returns are maybe overweighted, I think, is in the private markets where they maybe do drive things a little bit too much. Because like you say, you can sort of, you know, to characterize it slightly, you can wake up one morning and decide that all the liquid assets are going to do 50 basis points more. And suddenly that drives a huge portfolio allocation on the basis of literally a number in a spreadsheet, which isn't even a real number. You just, you just literally just make up a number and stick it in. And obviously, I'm, I'm exaggerating that a little bit for effects, but it's not so far from what, what happens sometimes, is it? Is that sort of what you see as well? Yeah, yeah. So I definitely think that there are, there are actually advantages to this smoothing to investors, even though, like, I, th- I think it's in some way it's very distorted. And so, so I, you know, like Cliff would emphasize this that it's just, it's just wrong. And so, but I'd say that when you get that smoothness and then it allows you to basically take initially more equity risk, bigger equity allocations when all of that is not mark to market. And then you can stick with it better when you don't get the big drawdowns that mark to market would in- imply. So, and then, you know, some people say that, that, you know, you can't do that, you get golden handcuffs there and that's helpful. But I would say that I would say that actually secondary markets are there nowadays, and you can you can go and pay through your nose with those discounts in in those markets. Or the other thing is that you just have less incentive to go and capitulate when you don't see the big drawdown. Though I suspect that we will see more now for at the end of December. Supposedly there is some pressure to be more honest about valuations at the end of the year than at the end of earlier quarters. So we should see more coming up. I guess you sort of in those comments touched a little bit on human behavioural aspects. Could we perhaps now talk a bit about the impact or I suppose the impact of behavioural characteristics, but also how we protect ourselves when we're thinking about forward looking assumptions from some of those behavioural risks? Yeah, yeah. So it is true that so with the many behavioural challenges that there are, I I think impatience and multi-year return chasing are what I highlight as premier bad habits. And and again, that that is related to this rear view, rear view mirror. I think so. so I, I tend to say this, that only equities are forgiven a bad decade. 
So we have generally this impatience, but with some things, we have got more conviction and more I, I, conventionality is part of it, why we allow that. Equities have had three down decades, even in US for the last last hundred years, three of the 10 were negative. And with anything else that wouldn't go, there would be the allocations. We saw it with commodities last decade or value investing and so on. It just So again, I think there are some answers that I try to suggest in the book, how you could improve your patience, becoming more sticky as an investor, education, more realistic expectations, learning, learning to view your portfolio, I say, more broadly and rarely, resist line items and myopia, and there are these types of tricks. But another perspective is maybe to sort of recognize that we are more patient with something such as equity risk, and, and you calibrate your portfolio accordingly then, rather knowing your limitations then. I would still try to challenge myself, but not as much as I would have done 10 years ago, I think. That has sort of changed, if I can, I drive this to my current biggest push I make then in this situation is I say that I accept and and take it for granted that equity risk dominated portfolios will be the rule. Pretty much everybody has that. I love diversifiers, but they are only good if you can stick with them. But now that we sort of accept that people have got this equity risk dominated portfolio, it means that then you have to ask what are the best risk mitigating strategies to this one risk that dominates in your portfolio when equities suffer? And my clear favorite in, in this group is trend following. So that strategy, I mean, there are other risk mitigating strategies. I have got those in my risk mitigating chapter, but this strategy has got, you know, long run, somewhat positive long run returns and a strong record in doing well in many equity bear markets, especially if those bear markets are protracted gradual ones, not if they are very fast V-shaped ones. So this year we are having one of those protracted markets and that's great for these types of trend and macro strategies. And I'd finish by saying that this is especially useful for portfolios where you have got lots of illiquid private assets because private assets don't have to worry about fast V-shaped bear markets. Smoothing takes care of that. It's a protracted bear market, which is the problem. And trend following is naturally good fit for that and you know that makes logical sense and we've checked it empirically and so to me this is the most useful thing that investors can add to their existing portfolios in this environment yeah you just rattled off a whole load of things there. i'm just going to try and un- go back and unpack some of those because we were sort of talking about and this is really relevant right so how investors can weather the storm if you like in underperforming how, how can investors hold on to underperforming things when they should do and so i think you said a couple of things around education which is really important and i suppose that's things like understanding is this drawdown sort of normal is it something i should expect has it happened before is it the biggest is it the second biggest when did it happen before i've I, I found that quite helpful just to really understand that but then you said i think you said view the portfolio more broadly and more rarely and that makes total sense. I guess that's a pushback against a tendency to view things yeah, on a line item basis, like every quarter or something, and to try and expect that every single line item ought to perform every single quarter. And then you have this kind of tendency to weed out anything that underperforms on a given quarter. So you're saying just look at it more rarely and actually don't dig down that much. Just kind of say if the overall is broadly working over long periods, then that's what you should be focused on. Yes, all of that, right. And I emphasize it, especially with these risk mitigating strategies, which are supposed to help. They were not supposed to do particularly well in the big bull market that we had, but still investors became impatient and basically often deallocated from them. I like my big contrast is versus option based strategies where you have what even work, like basically long run, they, they lose bundles. 
in between the periods where they have whereas trend following does tend to make money in the long run so it's less likely that you get you get sort of bled out and losing your patience but even with trend i just heard last week again with some investor that, that they said that it is difficult for them not to look at it as a line item or to acknowledge that insurance aspect and stick with it it was quite common for investors to sort of bail out from those positions even though they were not too bad but in basically 2010s so they were not nearly as bad or as value or commodities or put buying but still it was too much and again here i am still trying to challenge investors if you believe this is a good long run strategy then do try to figure out ways how you can stick with those even when they don't you know serve you so well every year because financial markets do not have anything that offers the kind of consistency that we want we demand too much performance consistency than is available in competitive relatively efficient markets that's a human error and that's that's sort of key problem that we have as investors and and that's something i would still try to challenge investors with Yeah, I completely agree with that. We've talked to other podcast guests about certainty, and I, I sort of feel that so much of the industry, unfortunately, is built up around trying to offer more certainty than is really there, and, and people come to kind of expect it, which then means that they, they kind of bail on it. But but that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I can see that you must have had tough conversations with investors, and I suppose when you're underperforming, there's a danger. The conversation becomes, what are you doing to go away and fix this underperformance for me, please, Mr. Underperforming Manager? Which I guess, as you'd say, is probably not the way to, to view it, but it is quite natural. That, that is, I guess, how people view it. I had a paper on patients ready for publication three years ago when we were having some tough times, and we just didn't want to publish it at that time because it would sound so self-serving. But I did put it to the book, even though, like, I just thought this is so important topic. I will have to cover it, but I, you have to frame it right in a right way. I think with some humility and so on. But I think almost every investor knows that. They should be more patient, and we all talk to patients, long horizon talk, and we—I don't know—we have got way too short horizon. That's right. Yeah, I think so. Andy, we're coming towards the end of today's episode. I wondered if you could give us the one thing that you want listeners to take away from today. Yeah, I think the broad message is: good investing is harder when we get to more tough times, and I suspect that we will have. You know, this year has been tough times, but I suspect there is more tough times ahead. So figure out what are good, good rules of good investing and and try to stick with them. Not the easy times that we had in the last decade. Great. And Antti, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? I think this portfolio perspective, you want to think about diversification and you want to especially think about what strategies are good complements to your existing portfolios. And again, that leads me to emphasize those risk mitigating strategies to major equity markets such as trend following. And final question, Andy, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts? I read a lot and I, I love historical fiction like Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall series and And in nonfiction, my favorite in recent years was Joe Henrich's The Weirdest People in the World, I think. This year, I like, in fiction, I, I really like Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead. It was great as an audio. I think I'll stick to books now in my answer. Excellent. And of course, we'll link to your, your two books as well, so the listeners can access those too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Brilliant. It's been a fantastic conversation today, Antti. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for your time. All the best. Up 
podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.